At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. There are numerous health and well-being challenges associated with isolation, cynicism, burnout, negativity, and divisiveness. And yet there is one surprising solution to each of those challenges. Are you ready for it? Well, Live Inspired community, here it is. Fun. Did you know that? It is actually having and choosing fun. That's right. Good old-fashioned fun. The kind you used to have when you were a kid. Having more fun, it turns out, improves your relationships, both professionally and personally. Fun, did you know this, makes you smarter. It reduces your stress. It allows us to not only more actively participate in physical activity, but to actually enjoy it while we're doing it. Fun can make you more energetic. It can make you more youthful. It makes you more attractive. How about that one, people? It elevates our culture, our retention, our impact, and our profitability professionally. There's just no reason not to choose to have a little bit more fun in our lives. And today's guest is going to remind us that fun is a resource available to each and every one of us almost any time, usually for free, yet most of us aren't having enough of it. As an organizational psychologist and behavioral scientist, Mike Rucker has critically evaluated modern approaches to happiness, and he's developed a science-backed and actionable source that reinforces the importance of seeking fun rather than happiness in our daily lives. Today, Mike shares how intentionally increasing your joyful moments by choosing fun can improve your health, your relationships, your productivity, and your life, while also providing specific guidance on helping you make the most of your time and create space for that fun. Whether you're a frustrated high achiever trying to find a better work-life balance or you're someone who is seeking relief from life's overwhelming challenges, my friends, this conversation is for you. So let me encourage you right now. Let's have a little bit of fun. Grab something to sip on during this conversation. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal and something to write with you and lead it today as you usually do during these podcasts. And get ready to buckle up because we are going to have a little bit of fun with my friend and yours. His name, Dr. Mike Rucker. Mike Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, man, I, I just spent the last four and a half minutes introducing you to our audience. But if you had the noble responsibility of introducing yourself to them, how would you introduce yourself? 
behavioral scientist and a brand new author with a book called The Fun Habit, where I've studied the science of fun and why it's important. When you're not studying the habit of fun and when you're not serving as a behavioral scientist, what else do you do? So I'm a father. I have a daughter and a son. So proud father and proud husband. My day job is uh, working for a company called Active Wellness. They're part of an ambulatory care unit out of Seattle. And we provide upfront services like fitness interventions and mindfulness training and things of that nature for employee populations, like in hospitals and corporate campuses and things of that nature. Awesome. Well, we'll be talking about that work and the roles as a husband and a dad, certainly talking about the book that came out that I loved as I read it. Thank but before so we talk about any of that stuff, man, I want, I want to back the bike out of the driveway, back home <laughs> a little bit farther. Talk about where you grew up and what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah. So I grew up in Davis, California and the product of two professors. So that, you know, it was challenging. They both put work in front of, you know, sort of domestic life that they lived in this publisher parish uh, environment. And so I don't fault them for that, but I think, you know, it did make me sort of long for social connection and understand that uh, I probably wanted to live life a little bit differently, not so focused on, you know, one outcome, but kind of a tapestry of life. And so it was interesting. I haven't been asked that that often, but yeah, it really shaped me. Davis is an amazing town. So it's, I live in Greensboro, North Carolina now. Yeah. So I really have an affinity for college towns. If I could live anywhere, I'd either be Wilmington, North Carolina or San Luis Obispo, California, just because you know, that vitality and that energy of the 20 something crowd, you know, I think is infectious, right? You learned a little bit about parenting and professorship and other roles and responsibilities as a kid growing up in California. What was your interest? You know, I, I was into biking around and you and I talked before I recorded baseball and walking the dog and playing outside. That's kind of my childhood. What were you into as a kid? couple of things. I talk about it in the book, but Dave Scott, one of the first uh, winners of the Ironman, you know, was a local legend. So that got me into endurance sport. So primarily running uh, for the most part, but then I did end up competing in a couple Ironman later. And then to be quite honest, I'm at fast forward to living under the rule of, of two parents that were really busy working. I ended up emancipating at 17. And because of that, um, being a senior in high school with your own apartment, I also... <laughs> got into a, a lot of reckless behavior. That was a lot of fun. And luckily didn't get into too much trouble, but just really enjoyed uh, social gatherings and things of that nature. And that kind of spilled into um, moving on to Chico State and had a lot of fun there as well. <laughs> right. right now, my, my mother's about to turn the channel. So before, mom, before you do, <laughs> let me let you know, this guy does have five advanced degrees. The 17 year old eventually threw away the Domino's pizza box and got That's his right. life in somewhat order for the degrees. You went to Chico State. What, what were you imagining you would do later on in life? So I've always been interested in entertainment and like creating in general. So I was shaped by the dot-com boom in Chico. I wanted to go into film and television. At that time, they, you know, the first sort of digital format of editing had just been created. So we were all working off of just one computer. It was kind of wild. We were still creating, you know, like if you had a radio show or a podcast, you were cutting it with tape, like literally splicing tape, not to date myself too much. So then I went to grad school for film school and I was in entertainment for a while. You know, part of my bio is I swept the floors of Baywatch. That was my very first job. I was able to kind of move on from film and television into uh, creating websites. And, and so that 
kept me busy for some time. And then, you know, I had this affinity for wanting to contribute to betterment. And so slowly but surely, I used my skills, you know, with regards to digital products and moved into the digital health realm. Um, and so and then, then the rest was history, really got into behavioral science and the psychology of things, you know, in conjunction with how technology plays a role. Yeah, well, there's a word in front of psychology that is always used when describing you and others in this field that I look up to, positive psychology. <laughs> so psychology, of course, is the study of you typically things wrong right. with people. And then positive psychology was a celebration of what's right and how to elevate that in the lives of others. So I think yeah. it's super cool you went into that. T tell me why you chose that, that path. So we talked a little bit about it before we hit play. Um, I, through serendipity, got connected uh, you know, I had a big entrepreneurial win and then I had uh, a business loss and I was kind of, you know, I, I needed some help. I needed some mentorship and I got connected with an amazing gentleman by the name of Michael Gervais. Um, and it was kind of through his mentorship that I found this community. I was connected with a gentleman by the name of uh, Marty Seglerman that had created a book called Authentic Happiness. Right. Um, but to fill in the listeners that don't really know. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it, but essentially up until about 2005, with the exception of this gentleman by the name of Cheek Set Me High, who created a book called Flow. I mean, Flow was gaining some traction, but we weren't really talking about positive psych in the general vernacular. And so this movement, the International Positive Psychology Association was created. And I, I was, I became a charter member again by just serendipity and invitation. And it was this movement to use the tools of psychology not to um, treat deficits and, and you know mental health, uh, poor mental health, but how could we use the tools of psychology for betterment for folks that you know are are living a fine life but want you know, some psychological tools um, to make themselves better. We call it flourishing, right? I really had a lot of fun with that, you know. But what became problematic with part of my story and is in the fun habit is that. I kind of went overboard and we now know that, you know, we call it toxic positivity now, right? But we now know that, especially here in the Western um, hemisphere, Western world, uh, this over concern of happiness, like people that are, you know, now have been kind of led to pursue happiness aggressively, that act is actually leading to a lot of detriment, unfortunately. And I certainly fell victim to that. The words you're using, flourishing or happiness, other words might include success or followers, or money, or fame, or a million other words that describe uh, achievement. Yeah. So you were pursuing this full tilt, yep. and not only pursuing it, but a, a successfully accomplishing great things in every aspect of your life, uh, professionally, financially, marriage, everything's on the right track, two kids, life is perfect, you're finishing first in the races, then 2014 and 15 ultimately click into 2016. And at that point, your life begins to change pretty dramatically and pretty profoundly. So there are a couple of stories, but I'd like you to kind of slow play this a little bit. The, the, the first one, agonizing, but it's part of your story. Talk, talk about your brother. Yeah, my younger brother, unfortunately, unexpectedly passed away from a pulmonary embolism. And that kind of really knocked me on my butt. I think you know, I'd been going through life really living joyfully, but really taking for granted how finite time was. And uh, so that was a real wake up call. But where that became problematic is that I still had these high, you know, affinity needs for feeling quote unquote happy. 
And so I didn't take any time to really mourn his death. I was just like, okay, this sucks. Spent a couple of days, you know, trying to gather my thoughts, got the funeral together, but then was still just trying to will myself to be happy. Like, Hey, you know, these things happen, you know, good vibes only, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And paradoxically, the more I tried to chase happiness, the more miserable I was becoming. And so I feel like I have a high level of self-awareness. I, I figured out fairly quickly that something was going wrong, but I didn't know what it was around that same time. Uh, the professor I often cite is Dr. Iris Mouse out of Cal, but um, there's been others after her. We're also researching how this aggressive pursuit of happiness, especially in the West, was causing a lot of poor mental hygiene to the point where it was leading to things like anxiety and clinical depression. And so it was a wake-up call, like, okay, you know, not only was I an experiment and, and of one and and falling into that category, you know, clearly that if I stayed on that path poor things were going to happen with regards to mental health. But I was also left like, okay, well, if these things aren't working right now in my particular situation, because they're often helpful, but they weren't helpful at the time, what could I do? And that's what really started this journey of like, okay, you know, if you're in a poor emotional state, but that's an appropriate response for that time, what can you do to kind of, you know, start to rebuild a joyful life and that, you know, taking an action oriented approach is, you know, really the core thesis of the book. You were talking about one of this, the leaders and researchers that you celebrate and, and recognize as, as kind of guiding us forward in the West, as we continue to choose this, this pathway that's leading to poor mental health. So rather than talking about your own example of that, talk about others, like what are the things we're currently doing that are helping cause our poor mental wellness. What seems to be the problem is when we identify happiness out in the horizon, but we're at point A and happiness is at point B, we really start to ruminate between the gap of where we're at and where we want to be, right? Where, you know, generally happiness is where our feet are, but a lot of us are, you know, sort of seeing happiness off in the distance. And what happens when you fall into that state is you start to identify slowly and it can be subconsciously so you don't even realize it like oh okay day after day i'm not where i want to be i'm i'm not this happy person this ideal and you start to within your identity it seeps in that you are unhappy and and once you get in that state once unhappiness sort of bleeds into your identity it becomes much harder to dig out of that hole and then all of a sudden you're you're seeing the world through the lens of melancholy right like oh okay and then it gets more insidious after that because then you just you're trying to find easy ways to displace that discomfort and that's when you can you know fall victim to doom scrolling that's when you sort of stop reaching out to others right because you're like well life just isn't worth living and th- and then again you know once these things start to ruminate r- you know really bad sort of you know negative thought loops can happen and that's you know it can have very dire consequences so some of our listeners are probably listening and thinking, wow, that sounds really bad for that vast minority of people who might be living there isolated and in despair and uh, without agency. But, but your research suggests that it's <laughs> it's a massive amount of individuals currently living in the state. Yeah, I mean, there was just research that trended on LinkedIn uh, at the beginning of 2023, so just a few weeks ago that indicate that one out of four people are so burnt out, they don't even know how to enjoy life. 
So grab a, a population of any four, it's likely that one person's life is so habituated with just being busy that they don't even know how to have fun anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So we're getting close to this being an epidemic. And then even at a more casual level, I mean, which just blows people away when they kind of become mindful of it. With regards to developed countries, we're second to last with regards to taking time off for leisure. So there's only one country below us that offers nine days a week. So our averages, you know, our companies are giving us 10 days a week. And again, that's, you know, that puts us second to last in, in the developed world. But what's even worse is that 50% of the US working force aren't using those days. And so what happens over time is that you just don't approach life with any vitality or vigor because you're just kind of getting along to get along, right? Once it becomes habituated, you don't even realize it. You know, you're like, oh yeah, you know, just kind of shoulder shrug. And so I think what I'm trying to do, you know, the same way that we kind of champion sleep deficits in the nineties, like, Hey, I'm only sleeping 20 hours a week. I, you know, I've got this hustle going and, you know, you wear it as a badge of honor. And we now know how asinine that is, right? Like, you know, you live in a sleep deficit for too long. Eventually you're not going to be doing anything with your life. Right. I think the, the, this, there's an emerging amount of research that suggests, even though it's harder to grasp and believe that that same thing is happening with leisure. And you can see it with the immense amount of burnout here in the US. Mm. Well, you've, you've already laid a few breadcrumbs on how we're going to fix the situation. You, the word leisure, the word fun, the word play. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start stepping into some of these solutions for the problem that we currently face, beginning with one that I love and celebrate. But it's always cool to have a researcher on who can elevate it with me. Gratitude. It seems like one of the pathways forward from where we are to where ultimately we collect, collectively can go next is with grateful hearts. Talk about the power of gratitude. So I always want to be careful here because I don't villainize it in the book, but I think, you know, again, there's this aspect of toxic positivity that, you know, where it's been overprescribed, right? The life coach that kind of latched on to the science and was like, oh, make sure you find three things a day, right? And we now you know, this research comes from Sonia Lubomirsky out of the UC Riverside. Like you want to make sure when you're using gratitude as an effective tool that it matches how you feel. But certainly to your point, being grateful that you have this ability to re-garner agency and autonomy over your life and just really living in the moment, you know, we call it savoring and enjoying and being grateful for the opportunities you do have mm. and just the life that you've been given this gift absolutely amplifies the power of fun and the joy and delight that you receive. And I take it a step further that once you realize that you have the ability to create that, you know, at some level, all of us, you know, will fall victim to our own circumstances. Um, you know, that's certainly part of your story, right? But what we do have, we're still here, we're still alive, and we still have these joyous relationships. We still have the ability to create these, you know, amazing connections like you and I are having right now. When we celebrate those, they just become that much richer. Mm. And they're also great, you know, when we do feel that in our heart, right? When we, when we do feel that connection, you know, again, I call it kind of the me feeling versus the we feeling, you know, even if that connection is something like nature or your spirituality or a hobby you love, um, when we feel that connection, there just seems to be something much greater about creating, you know, that joy and delight in our life than just kind of feeling like it's self-serving. Again, I love your frame, you know, sort of significant versus success. Am I trying to achieve something or is this something, you know, where I feel a connection to the thing that I'm doing or the person I'm doing yeah. or the environment in which I'm doing it? 
Well, and one of the things that gratitude reminds us of is slowing down to pause and recognize what it is we're creating in the first place. Absolutely. And I think one of the cool things you do is you've actually created a treasure chest to place those items in. Would you just talk a little bit about that? I'm not suggesting that anyone become a hoarder, but I think, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a certain benefit for having a tangible asset to something that really lights you up. You know, like I'm sure every time, you know, you see that, that crystal ball that you have, like that memory, right? Like you can just soak in it and, and it makes you feel better. But even at like a lower level, like something, you know, like an event ticket with your child or whatever it is, some sort of tangible asset that brings you back to that memory. And so for me, I've created an entire, you know, I was, this comes from a place of privilege, obviously, but I was lucky enough to backpack around Europe. And I was really mindful of making sure that I took a little something, you know, whether it was a brochure or something that was memorable from each experience. And now when I hold it in my hand, it brings me back to that thing. And so, you know, not to geek out on the science, but you know, whether you're someone that really likes to write things down, which I'm not, or, you know, uh, just somebody that likes to uh, collect things, you know, creating these mementos, you know, th these opportunities to uh, relish and reminisce in these fond memories really allow us to build resilience and bring us back to those special moments. So you, my friend, were an athlete that ran your way. You climbed every ladder. You achieved great success. You identified as that triathlete. And then not only did you lose your brother in 2016, you also were injured and ultimately unable to continue competing at that level. So the race in more way than one began to end. Talk about the power of, of surrendering or letting go or accepting or in any frame that you want to utilize when you think about getting off that sprint treadmill and slowing down a little bit in life. You know, you really do need to accept these changes in identity when they come up. And so what was problematic is I really did identify as a runner, right? I've always had sort of low level anxiety. I, I think I've used that effectively to help, you know, because low level anxiety can be great energy. Um, but my primary tool for mitigating that was running and that was taken away from me. Not only that, but I really, I loved identifying as a runner. Like, you know, a lot of my social interaction was joining running clubs, you know, wherever I happened to be and, and things like that. So, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, I couldn't overcome that pain and the ability to sort of move on until I accepted like, you know, this is you're going to need to reinvent yourself. And there are plenty of opportunities to do that. It took a little bit of time, but now I really enjoy cycling, especially enjoy my Peloton because like every time I turn that thing on, you know, it's a party in my room and I still get to engage in exercise. There are just so many stories of where you lose the ability to really engage in something that you like, but that doesn't mean that there's an abundance of other things that you can find, you know, once you take the time to mourn that loss. And so similar to how I tried to solve, you know, this, uh, the morning of my brother, you know, by, you know, over aggressively using tools, if, if you need some time, please do take it, but also mm -hmm. know there's an abundance of other things that are going to light you up. And all you've got to do is get curious and go find those. Well, it's, uh, you and I were talking offline and certainly your research backs us up that sometimes the more aggressively pursue the thing you think you want, like happiness or peace, the farther away you get from that thing you thought you wanted, like happiness or peace. So my first question is, why is that? And then secondly, how can fun help solve for that? I mean, to answer your question discreetly, I think it's really that you know, these things become an exercise in evaluation. 
And so they take you out of being able to experience them, right? And so happiness specifically, when we talk about it, especially in the Western context, because all of these are constructs, right? But as, as we know it here, we have to stop and sort of say, hey, are we happy? And happiness in that way becomes problematic because one, there's sort of this evolutionary component to adapt to any level of happiness. So it's going to be fleeting anyways. And then especially if the bar is set where ultimately you're going to achieve a peak and there's nowhere else to go, then you set yourself to only fall down. Why I suggest fun as a better tool for this is one, you can just go and have fun. It's an action orientation. It never ends. You can essentially build a life as long as you're not evaluating how much fun you're having of really just enjoying the time that you have here. There are going to be ups and downs, but really once you start to have that mindset of like, okay, I'm just going to be in it. And so, you know, I have these tools to sort of make things more enjoyable and I have the agency and autonomy to do that, but whatever happens, as long as I'm really enjoying my time, the people I'm with and the environment I'm in, then I'm just going to be in that moment. It becomes, you know, essentially an extension of a mindfulness practice but one that makes you laugh, one that makes you smile, makes you look back at your day and go, wow, you know, that was a, that was a day really well lived. Mm. And it pairs nicely with wanting to succeed. You know, the, the last chapter in the book is how some of the most successful uh, philanthropists use fun to be able to have the resilience to really do hard work. Because especially in that space, right, these really humongous rocks that we try to move, these big, heady problems, we might only have one or two big successes in our lives. So if you wait around for those to happen and don't enjoy the journey, like that could be a really agonizing life, just waiting around for that, right? So I'm going to ask you kind of an either or, and the answer yeah. might be yes and. No, that's fine. But when you talk about fun, are you suggesting after work, go by the bowling alley, meet up with a couple of buddies and have a blast, have a little bit of fun throughout the course of your day and week and life. You'll get far more out of it and life will get far more out of you. Or is it more of, for those of us who've been up in Seattle, you've been to the fish market probably, and there's a group of guys and ladies who throw fish around and while they do, they're singing in this job that would be lousy. It's hard work, it's backbreaking, it's painful, it's smelly, it's miserable because of the manner in which they get into the day, they have a blast, they have fun, and they attract others to have fun with them. So the question is, are you asking us to, turn on the smile, start singing and dance through the day? Or is it no, once that day comes to its appropriate conclusion, choose to have fun at some point in it? So it's a little bit of both, you know, your and or yes, and certainly I'm not asking you to smile, right? Because that, that, that can be triggering, right? Like, hey, it'd just be great if you smiled a little bit more, right? But I think what is important, especially here in the US, you know, to answer your question is, Yes, I definitely advocate for a transition ritual. I think so many of us, especially in, you know, knowledge workers, which uh, a majority of us are, with the advent of smartphones, don't know when our day end, you know, and we're constantly sending these sort of signals so that our, you know, especially folks with family, our kids model it, right? We're walking into the house on the phone. We haven't quit work yet. And then a lot of us, you know, have our notifications on. So throughout that night, it's not leisure. It's not downtime. It's not... Uh, you know, connection with the folks that we love, it's an essentially, it's an extension of work, but it tricks us, right? Because it's, oh, you know, I only answered like six emails, but the way our brain interprets that is essentially our work day never ended, right? So first and foremost, do you need to go to the bowling alley? Absolutely not. Like for my wife, 
She loves low arousal fun, right? So for her, it would be either, you know, playing a board game with the kids or reading a book while they're doing something else, right? So it doesn't necessarily need to be this boisterous, you know, Instagram influencer activity where you're clicking your heels on the beach. But there's this academic concept called the hedonic flexibility principle that uh, I, we didn't know if we were going to get into, but I'm, I'm glad you said it. Cause I told you ahead of time, I'm not saying that word. <laughs> okay. I will butcher it, but real quick to unpack it for the listeners, w- this study comes out of MIT, Stanford, and Harvard, and it's got a big sample group. So really well-researched study over 20,000 participants, I believe. And so what we know is that folks that do take a little bit time off the table for themselves and enjoy things outside of work show up and do much harder stuff, have the resilience to, you know, really go into big problems, have the resilience to do harder stuff for much longer, um, tend to make better choices. The folks that are burnt out, so aren't necessarily, you just aren't finding joy in life, tend to look for escapism. You know, those are the ones, you know, and again, these are generalities, you know, normal curves and things of that nature. So might not apply to you, but um, as a general rule, these folks that aren't taking aren't enjoying themselves, find ways to sort of fake pleasure in ways that don't lead to betterment. You know, again, drinking, gambling, you know, doom scrolling on social media, you know, it runs the gambit. So having, having a transition from your working life to enjoying some of your life becomes extremely important. There are a lot of amazing sort of low level tactics to enjoy your work too. And I think what you brought up is an amazing example. Like, you know, if you have tasks at work that you don't really enjoy, what's the way to reframe them? One of the suggestions I make in the book is have fun approaching that as an anthropologist. Like you take yourself out of it and go, okay, this is the job that needs to get done. How might I do it a little bit more joyfully? And oftentimes just that simple approach of like, there's just no other way to do that. Is is that true? Because oftentimes, you know, it can be improved. One of the most important takeaways is yes, make sure that you're enjoying your life, you know? And then the second is, can work be enjoyable? Absolutely. So let's talk about enjoying life and uh-huh. seeing it as the profoundly beautiful adventure that it is. Not always perfect, not always easy, not always upward in a smooth line, but it is an awesome adventure. Savoring every moment. I don't think the idea is shocking to us that the more we savor the moment, the more the moment will mean to us in real time and as we look back on it. But, but what's your encouragement or ideas, practically speaking, around how we can savor more moments more effectively? I think just really being in it, right? So, you know, there's some simple strategies, you know, turning off your phone, really being empathetic to the people that you're with or the activity that you're doing, and really allowing yourself to immerse yourself in it. You know, one of the things we talked about it earlier, but if you can get yourself into flow when you're really doing something enjoyable so that you know, time kind of slips away and you're just in it, those things really fill us up. Again, not to geek out on the science, there's this idea called uh, wandering. And this comes from Matt Killingsworth and uh, Dan Gilbert out of Harvard. And what we know is that when we just kind of mindlessly go through our activities, we don't feel like life's very fun, you know, because we're just kind of getting along to get along. And so the ability to savor the things that we really do has a a host of benefits, but the two that I feel are important are one, you're really in the moment, right? You're really with the people that you are. Again, I think one of the really neat things about fun is it does connect you. It makes you feel like, you know, we're part of something bigger than just ourselves. You know, our egos start to slip away. But the other thing is 
when we're really savoring the moment, those are great pieces of data to mm -hmm. understand what we want to do more, you know, the people that we want to be with more. And so savoring does require you to have a sense of enjoyment. If, if you're in a level of discomfort, it's going to be hard to, to savor that moment, right? You know, we create richer memories that, that builds resilience. This comes from Bronnie Ware. Most people are familiar with her work, you know, the five regrets of the dying. And so when we're savoring those mo moments, they become encoded into our brains in, in a much richer way. We understand the detail. Again, you know, we talked about having these tangible assets that bring us back, but when we encode those memories, we'll remember the smells, right? We'll remember, you know, the touch of the people that we love. All that stuff becomes so important because those are the things that, you know, will really allow us to be optimistic and, and create positivity and flourish in our older age because we have all these rich memories that we've indexed over time and savoring them helps us do that. Mm. So savoring them, I'm, I'm going to spend a moment on that. One of the, yeah. the things that I love to do at the end of a work day is after coming home and after playing with the kids, shooting baskets, playing ping pong, all the things you do as a, as a, a father, guardian, eventually my wife and I get a little one-on-one -one time and we take a lap around the neighborhood. We did this last night. We made it in about 13 minutes. And as we wrapped up, we saw some little kids playing outside next door to us. And then it reminded me how long the walks used to be when I would walk around with my little kids. Like Beth and I can make it 12, 13 minutes around this big loop. Dude, it used to take us a couple hours. Every leaf we would pick up, every rock we would turn over, every caterpillar we would pick up and hold. Kids cherish their time. And the experience for them each time is, is a first-time experience. Every experience, for the most part, is new. But then it made me think about some of your other research, which is why does time fly by as we get older? I yeah. mean, 23 is going to fly by and just wait until the following year. But when you're little, man, summertime feels like 11 years. Yeah. And Christmas break, my, it goes on for three and a half months and it takes forever. So what, what happens between the time when we're little people until the time when we're a little bit more advanced in life that seems to change the way we view space and time? Well, I'll use one big word and that is heuristics. That essentially just means that once we, as we get older, the information incoming for us to be able to just operate within our environment, right, is, is so much. We're drinking from the fire hose. So we need the ability to filter out information. Kids don't need that, right? So they, you know, everything is this novel experience. And what you just described is the awe and wonder of kids understanding how their universe works, right? And we can still do that as adults, but we just forget because we take everything for granted you had indicated that you want to know why that's important. And so this is, you know, my simple approach to explaining this is that if you had a thousand copies of the same magazine, would you keep all a thousand copies in your garage, you know, let that take up space? Or would you go, I don't need the other 999. I only need this one. And our brain works the same way. Like we've hmm. habituated our behavior and we're just kind of doing the same thing week after week after week. Essentially our brain only keeps one copy of that memory because that's all it needs. But where that becomes problematic is that if you've kind of just lived a routine life, you know, especially one that isn't rich with detail, when you finally retire, and this happens a lot to folks, they look back and they just kind of go, oh, yeah, I worked, you know, or, oh, yeah, I was a mom. Not to villainize either one of those things, but it does point to if you want to encode sort of a rich tapestry of really neat things, because life is worth living. 
you need to do that deliberately. And so that requires a little bit of upfront planning as not fun as that sounds, right? To make sure that you're inviting those types of opportunities to happen. You know, I would suggest this particular mindfulness technique, the next time you're on a, a walk with your wife, maybe look for five things that are sort of interesting and then listen for four uh, things that you can hear that are kind of interesting and then three smells that are a little bit different. And that can really bring you into that same right. space, right? Um, and it starts to dilate time again because you know now you're having coding all these things because you're like, oh yeah, okay, I remember. And so you know those things become important. But to answer your question, the reason why you know not just kind of going through these routines that don't really light you up that you don't find enjoyable, why they become problematic over time is that you know you do that for a long stretch of time, your brain's just going to not remember anything. You're going to look back, and it's just going to be you know a couple of weird, you know, memories and you're going to wonder what happened. And I've shared this story before in the podcast, but it bears worth repeating and it's not to brag, but the best year of our marriage was 2017 years ago now. And I think the reason for that was on January 1st, I began a journal entry with the word steer Beth. And I tracked everything cool she did throughout the day on January 1st without telling her. And I did the same thing on January 2nd and on the 3rd and every single day until Christmas morning, uh, 360 days later, which kept me laser focused on the walk through that year on the beauty of her life and ultimately of our life. So track the things that matter is what you're saying. And you wrote this book, The Fun Habit, how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. And yet it ends not so much with a story of life as much with a story of death, kind of a surprise in any, but one that I agree with. Tell me why you uh, started with the end in mind at the end. I was told by the publisher that a book about fun couldn't have elements of death. So I, I had to squeeze it there in the conclusion. But when I was doing the research for the book, and so these were, you know, not my insights, but that I found quite profound is that folks that had this intimate relationship with death you know, either through some sort of tragic event or, um, you know, a life-changing experience, they understand that time is really the only resource that we can't create. And so they make the best of it. And so once you get that rich understanding, that's why, you know, I wanted to end in that way, because I hope that, you know, people live with that, leave with that understanding, that once you accept that we only have this finite time, then you really get deliberate about how you want to use that. There's a little bit of privilege making the, this next statement, but we can generally make more money if we really want, right? And, you know, most of the resources, they're, they're not in abundance, but you can get more of it if you want. We can't make more time. That's just impossible. And so understanding that our end will come makes us cherish the time that we do have. We make smarter choices. We understand that, hey, I really do want to enjoy my time now in a way that's responsible we're going to wrap up in a moment with the Live Inspired Seven. And before we do, you and I began the conversation in California, talking about you growing up the son of two professors. Well, now you're raising two little ones and they are looking up to their professor, to their dad. You shared a little bit about what you wanted to become because of your parents, but also maybe what you did not want to become because of your parents. What do you hope that your kids become because of you? Yeah, I really just want to inspire them to enjoy what they do, right? So I think I still have that ingrained, you know, that I, I want folks to feel a sense of 
of success to a level as long as it's not outcome focused. So, you know, um, but really find the light in what they do. So especially my daughter, you know, it's really taken to gymnastics. And so I try one to be there, you know, just so that she understands like how much joy she's not bringing to herself, but she's bringing to us too. Um, but that when she has a bad day, it's, it's not that important. You know, it's really about, um, you know, finding joy in the, in the things that she's doing. And I just want them to know that I'm there. So a lot of times what I'll do, I have a box, you know, that I, where I'll put my phone, like I let them know that I'm present um, and that, you know, whatever they need from me, they can get it. So that's an important thing that I, I think was a little bit lacking, you know, um, in my childhood that I want to make sure um, they just know I'm there, you know, for whatever they need. I tend to be a bit of an empath, whatever that means. And, uh, and, you know, so they play, they play on my emotions sometimes, but we have a lot of fun. And so whenever they do want to have fun, you know, they give me the invitation. I try to take it. Um, you know, it, even if it's, uh, you know, means that I have to put some stuff to the side for better or worse. And play Barbies or put the dress on or whatever else they want to do. Yeah. Okay. We'll do that. We'll do our one another's hair right now. Real quick, an important caveat to that. Cause I write about it in the book is that I did to try and go overboard, not just on experiences, but also material things. Cause I was traveling a lot. So when people hear, hear this, know that I did make the mistake of kind of, again, over-optimizing, right? To your point, kind of, you know, sometimes I use the metaphor of chasing the cat by the tail, right? The more you try to do that, you're not going to get the cat. Um, so, you know, I was also buying a lot of toys that we could play. And uh, I realized very quickly, you know, that that was another one of those bars that we talked about at the beginning of the show, right? Like they just wanted the bigger and bigger toys. So I had to you know, all of this is experimentation, right? Like, I don't think any parent is nailing it 100% of the time. But so now, you know, whenever there is that invitation to play, make sure it's more experiential than mm. materialistic. Well, you, I've heard you on uh, several other podcasts. And one of the gentlemen who had you on is a business owner and successful and wealthy. And he was almost surprised that he's achieved all this and bought this big house and filled it with all these games. And for some reason, he's not having fun. And he, he couldn't fully understand that. And you reminded him that the data shows that it at, at some point, and it's relatively low, all things considered, at some point, once you make that much, the next dollar or the next $10,000 or the next couple hundred thousand dollars won't add much to your to your joy. Yeah, definitely uh, diminishing utility. Yeah. Uh, well, my friend, we, we wrap up every podcast with seven questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So we're going to begin right now in earnest with question number one. What's been the most impactful book or the most inspirational book you've ever read? Hands down, it's Sapiens. That really just blew my mind. You know, even if you're spiritual, you sort of understand that dogma has been created by man, that money has been created by man, that government's been created by man. And so you're, I mean, you know, it's not like I, like Elon Musk and believe we live in the matrix or anything, but the way we sort of go through the world really has been dictated a lot by our own creativity, right? I mean, all of these things are sort of constructs created by man. And so that book made me realize like, wow, okay, when you do reclaim your agency and autonomy, you know, depending on what your sphere of influence is, you probably can, you know, create some game mechanics that slant the game in your favor, right? Because most of this is just kind of contrived. And so I found that mind blowing, like, cause I don't, I think you completely take that for granted, you know, before someone illuminates that for you. And they do, he does such a good job of that in that book. 
what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in California that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think I'm back to it. So I don't want to pat myself on the back, but certainly curiosity. I've always had this thirst for knowledge and I lost that a little bit along the way. And now I've gotten it back. I mean, that's why I created the book because this has been such a fun journey, you know, connecting with folks smarter than myself to kind of, you know, drink in the wisdom of, um, you know, what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong. If your home caught fire and your children and spouse are out safely, all the animals are outside safely, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, something that really matters to you, what would you come out of that house with? That treasure chest we talked about earlier. (laughs) That's, yeah, I don't want to lose that. So it literally is like a little treasure chest. I, I didn't know if that was being metaphoric or actual. So you have a, a box of goodies in there. It's a big trunk. That's awesome. But it's got wheels, so I'd be able to get it out quick. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench next to that treasure chest and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who would you like to be visiting with? So I have said this once before, but I think Alan Watts. I'm really aligned with a lot of his wisdom, although, you know, I don't agree with him wholeheartedly. So it'd be really interesting to sort of say, you know, hey, this is my ideology. What do you think I've gotten right? And then challenge him on some of the things I think he's gotten wrong. But uh, yeah, definitely Alan Watts. What's the best advice that Alan Watts or uh, your daughter or anyone else has ever given you? I think really being in the moment, right? I got that from Michael Gervais, who I've already, you know, just I mean, there's not any better advice than that, right? I mean, you know, if you're not in that, then you're sort of out somewhere else and you're not connected to this amazing thing we call life. And so, you know, be where your feet are would be the best piece of advice I've gotten. Then if you could go back in time a little bit to whisper some wisdom to yourself at age 20, what would you say? Slow down a little bit and, so, and figure out what happiness really means to you you know, in a deliberate way, not necessarily, you know, the way that I did it in my thirties, but uh, I, you know, even though the advent of social media wasn't prevalent, you know, in my twenties, I still really worried about the external uh, interpretation of my own personality. So, you know, it was built on trying to please others. And I think if I had understood the folly of that earlier, um, I would have matured faster. And Mm. so, you know, I certainly ran into some problems trying to appease other people, um, not necessarily, you know, circumventing kindness, because I, I think kindness is what, you know, keeps us <laughs> sane and all together, right? But I was, yeah, I was trying to please other people, which became problematic. Dr. Mike Rucker, it has been said that all great people and authors and researchers and fathers and human beings, Sabians, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? It's chaos. Be kind. Have fun. Dr. Mike Rucker lived in a chaotic, challenging time. He was kind. He had fun. And he showed the rest of us how we can do likewise in our lives. Mike, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast family. And I want to wish you all the best with the book, The Fun Habit. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, it's been a great time. One of my favorite podcasts. Thank you so much, John. It's his first podcast. We wish him better luck on the second podcast, (laughs) my friends. That is Dr. Mike Rucker. My name is John O'Leary. Today's your day. What a gift. Have fun and live inspired. Well, my friends, children are sponges. And as parents or guardians, aunties, 
uncles, being present and free from distractions can be one of the most important things that we can do for our little ones. It's no wonder why I loved hearing that Mike purposefully puts his phone in a box to show his children that he is present with them when he comes home from work. He wants to be free of distractions because distractions, it turns out, keeps you from having fun. And when you don't have fun, it's hard to be fully present in the moment with those that you are with. Last year, I welcomed award-winning science journalist and screen life balance expert. Her name is Catherine Price. Some of you may remember that. She shared evidence-backed resources to help others design lives in which they control their technology rather than the other way around with the ultimate goal of increasing happiness, productivity, creativity, health, and well-being. If you want to continue the conversation that we began today with Mike, let me encourage you to let your fingers do the walking right now to episode 470. You're going to love it. It's with my friend, Catherine Price, and she's going to remind you of some of the ideas that Mike put forward today. It's a powerful conversation. My friends, that is found at episode 470. If you can't find it there, do me a favor. Go over to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, and we will have a link to that episode in our show notes from this one. So I want to thank you for tuning into this one. I want to thank you for living out this message. I want to encourage you this week to have a little bit more fun. And I want to remind you that the foundation is firm. The headwind may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. And friends, this is your day. Don't miss it. Have fun. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.